This is episode number one of the Govern Yourself Accordingly podcast, the podcast for engaged citizens and public leaders who want to lead change through politics with their integrity intact. My name is Mark Coffin, and I'm your host. Welcome. Together, we will create brave space because there is no such thing as a safe space. We exist in the real world. We all carry scars, and we have all caused wounds. In this space, we seek to turn down the volume of the outside world. We amplify voices that fight to be heard elsewhere. We call each other to more truth and love. We have the right to start somewhere and continue to grow. We have the responsibility to examine what we think we know. We will not be perfect. The space will not be perfect. It will not always be what we wish it to be, but it will be our brave space together, and we will work on it side by side. The poem you just heard is called An Invitation to Brave Space, and it was written by Mickey Scott Bay Jones. That poem is read at the beginning of each of the people's suppers, suppers that have been happening around the United States since early 2017. The first People's Supper, the first 10 People's Suppers, happened in homes across Washington, D.C. on Inauguration Day, January 20th, 2017. At that time, the project was simply called 100 Days, 100 Dinners, where each dinner would be an opportunity for people who felt divided or hurt by the election campaign to come together for bridging and healing. But the work that happened in those early dinners could not be contained to 100 days or 100 meals. 100 Days, 100 Dinners is now called The People's Supper. And today, on the Govern Yourself Accordingly podcast, the three founders of The People's Supper, Lennon Flowers, Reverend Jennifer Bailey, and Emily May, they join me to talk about the kind of conversations they've been having and organizing across difference and across the United States. When the four of us had a chance to speak, we were all in different places, so unfortunately we couldn't share a meal. But I asked them each to introduce themselves as if we were all around the same dinner table. They all know something about starting things. In addition to founding the People's Supper together, each of them are the co-founder or founder of the organizations they run. Lennon Flowers is the founder of The Dinner Party, an organization which... Which ostensibly to the world um, is known as a community of mostly 20 and 30-somethings who've each experienced some form of a major loss, um, typically a death loss, and connect around potluck tables to talk about it. Um, and I think, you know, the short answer of, you know, why you do what you do um, as uh, the better answer than the what uh, oftentimes um, is just, I hate small talk um, and believe very deeply <laughs> in it. the fact that all of the things that we spend our time not talking about um, are the things that are most important to talk about and, um, and really mm. dedicated to how to create low barrier spaces in which humans can be human with one another. Reverend Jennifer Bailey is the founder and executive director of the Faith Matters Network, which is... Which is a people of color collective based in the American South that works to empower what we would call 21st century spiritually rooted justice-oriented leaders to build more equitable communities. If I was a dinner party, I probably wouldn't say all that. I would just say <laughs> simply um, that I'm in the business of empowering rad folk to do good work and build communities in the world. And Emily May is the co-founder and executive director of Hollaback, an organization dedicated to fighting harassment in all its forms. I do this work because I believe in people 
being who they are and having the right to be who they are, no matter where they are. Um, and I think that, uh, that part of the reason I got hooked up with um, these two amazing women um, is because around the time of the election, I started to wonder if it wasn't enough for us just to not harass each other. That I've been told for so long that that was like too ambitious of a goal. And then all of a sudden I was like, no, no. Not only is that not too ambitious, that is not enough. Um, we actually need to figure out um, how to go beyond that and, and deeply see and care for one another. Um, and so, uh, you know, together the motley crew of us launched the People's Supper right after the election. The funny thing is when Lennon started doing the dinner party full time, I was so happy for her and I was so bummed because I was like, gosh, you know, like their organization focuses on grief. They're, we do like really nothing in that space. Um, I'm never going to, we're never going to be able to collaborate on anything. <laughs> <laughs> the, the only emotion that I could, I could really point my put a finger on um, before the election and after the election um, was this emotion of grief, right? I was very plugged into the trauma side of things. And so what I was watching were people who had experienced, um, you know, uh, uh, trauma being, being triggered and having that trauma um, <clears throat> uh, being reignited through the election. Mm. But even in, uh, inside of that, even for folks who hadn't experienced that degree of trauma, there was just this grieving of like this losing of one another. Um, and so it was in that spirit that I was like, I know somebody who knows about grief. <laughs> I know one person literally who knows something about grief. Um, and so uh, reached out to Lennon, the locus of all things wonderful. <laughs> Um, at the time, it was interesting because, you know, that was under the expectation that we would wake up um, after Election Day in a very different world um, than the one that it turned out we woke up to. Um, but it felt really important. I think that, um, you know, both on an individual person to person kind of level and culturally, so often our impulse um, is to, you know, just move on, right? Um, and, you know, I spend my waking hours, um, you know, and many of my evening hours around dinner tables um, in that kind of um, recognition space that there is a difference between moving forward and moving on. And that actually, like when we try to wipe things under a rug and pretend that they didn't happen and there was so much grief and hurt um, in the wake of simply the election cycle, I think it's hard oftentimes to remember um, what 2016 was against the backdrop of 2017 now. Um, mm. But that impulse and that need um, for communities to gather and come forward in what Emily at the time was calling this kind of moment of truth um, felt so, so important. Um, you know, and, and the recognition that this isn't an experience to be done alone and in isolation and with your, you know, getting your own self-care on, um, but actually one that's really dependent on, um, you know, our ability to gather in community um, and to gather and to hear each other. And then um, the election happened um, and it felt in that moment, um, the recognition um, that uh, we woke up in a moment of, um, at this moment of apocalypse and the meaning of that term um, has only become clear for me um, through through Jen's work. Yeah, so, so I'm a preacher, <laughs> so I think <laughs> a lot about um, the end of times. And one thing that kept coming up for me in the wake of the 2016 in the presidential election in the US is this image of apocalypse, um, not kind of the stuff of aliens coming to earth and ending the world as we know it, but we know um, that the Greek root of the word apocalypse actually means to uncover. And I think what was uncovered in that moment for a lot of people in the United States 
was just how deeply frayed the ties that um, tie together our democracy really are. Mm. And that there were a whole lot of folks interested post-presidential election in a conversation about reconciliation, but reconciliation assumes that you have relationship to begin with. And I can say for myself, as a Black woman, um, born and raised in the United States and who's the direct descendants of slaves, um, I think there is a way in which we assume relationship in the U.S. as this great cultural melting pot when really we haven't really touched each other. And I mean that both because of policies that keep us segregated from one another and where we can live and because of the way our school systems are structured that keep us apart from one another. And so the work then becomes what does it look like for us in this apocalyptic moment to revision what the American dream can be when for a lot of folks who've lived on the margins, we've known that the American dream was a myth for a very long time. It just feels like everybody else is right. catching up. We've talked a lot about how the three of you got together and decided to work together. Um, maybe just to take a step back, what what is the People's Supper? Um, I mean, the People's Supper um, was this this idea that that maybe maybe if we could see each other more deeply um that it wouldn't necessarily change our policy opinions but it might change the way that we see each other um and um you know i read something before the election by eric Liu um that was really helpful to me it was um it was this piece about, um, you know, truth and reconciliation and how, you know, a rush to reconcile after the election. And remember, this is back when we were all, you know, checking our New York Times apps daily and seeing that Hillary was most definitely going to win, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but that a rush to reconcile post-election um, could actually further entrench injustice because of, you know, this, the, of what Jen's talking about, right? Because now we have seen something, we have uncovered something, um, and we can't actually unsee that anymore. Mm. And so if we just try and be like, well, let's pretend like that didn't happen. Let's just try and go back to the way things used to be when we were all getting along, you know, then we're not actually seizing the opportunity to look at what's wrong, to look at mm. what's dividing us. Um, and through looking at what's dividing us, start to ex- explore um, the nuances of that and the curvature of that and what's true and what's not true in that and where we can um, heal and where we can bridge. Um, and so, you know, we had this idea with the People's Supper that it would really have these two sides to it, um, that on one side, we would create spaces um, for healing, um, for, you know, folks who had been similarly impacted, um, by the election or, or by the policies that have been enacted since the election, um, to come together or the the events since the election, like Charlottesville, for example, um, to come together, um, and, and just to sort of be in community with one another and to process what happened and to, to explore, you know, this idea of individual and collective resilience. Um, and then, and, you know, the other on the other side of the equation, we were interested in this idea of bridging. We knew that, you know, not everybody was was um, you know right for that. Not everybody was ready for that. Not everybody was even safe inside those conversations. Um, but we also knew that there was this um, this curiosity, this hunger, this interest there um, uh, to enter into these conversations across divides um, in ways that were non judgmental. 
And so we set upon the task of, of figuring out what that might look like and how we could have those bridging dinners, um, not along lines of, of policy, but along lines of humanity and who people were. Um, mm. and, um, and I think, you know, one of the lessons that we've learned within all of this is that, you know, there is, uh, there is you know, really no such thing as, as true healing healing supper where you're just with folks who are only sharing your identities because none of us are the exact same people. None of us share the exact same set of identities. There's always going to be bridging to some degree. Um, and, and, and similarly, you know, many of, uh, many of the bridging suppers that we've had, um, you know, we expected a real drive to be across political lines. Uh, but the reality is, is that, you know, conservatives have been hesitant to show up to the table, largely for fear of harassment or, or for assumptions that they mm. must be or they must be racist. Um, but what we have seen is a tremendous need um, of, of broad forms of bridging, bridging across racial divide, um, bridging across political divide as well, right? Recognizing there is a spectrum inside that. Um, and, you know, bridging across age differences and that, and that type of thing. And so that's been really beautiful to see come together as well. What is it that the people who come out to a people's supper, what do those people have in common? Like, what is it that's enough to get them in the room together to say, yeah, I want to spend an evening doing something like this? You know, my sense is that one thing that unites people who show up at our dinner tables is this deep kind of gut sense that something's not right in their communities. Um, it may be that they don't know their neighbors. It may be that they see a really profound disconnect happening in the public sphere, but also see it happening in their own life across lines of difference. Mm. Um, and I'd be curious, uh, Lebanon and Emily, what you think unites people, but I do think there's also something to this point around grief that mm -hmm. uh, Emily was making earlier, that that's something missing often translates into a deep feeling of, of grief and loss and they're seeking mm. something to fill that space. So, you know, one of the things that, um, that I've been thinking about a bit because so much of the work that we do is online and because part of our work is at Hallback is focusing on online harassment um, is that people also saw through this election that this is like the dark days of the internet. This is the, these are the days of the internet um, where if you're not um, overwhelmed by security breaches, um, by, by data breaches, uh, then perhaps you're overwhelmed by bots, right? Um, and then if you're not overwhelmed by any of that, um, then, uh, then you may just be overwhelmed by the content that you see looking at your Facebook feed, right? That hmm. it's not the sort of original vision of the internet of we're all going to find our like-minded souls across the universe and connect with them. This is like, you know, folks really coming at each other, um, and, and developing systems and technology structures to come at each other um, in ways that are hard and that, you know, as a result of now having social media in our lives for the past 10 or so years, um, we've developed this wide but thin net um, of, of safety and security. And we're in, um, you know, what has been termed the, the age of loneliness. Um, and I think that uh, that, that is also a huge driver that in some ways, like the people supper, um, which has been a, a lovingly termed by some, I love this term, uh, dinner technology, um, right? <laughs> it's dinner technology because it brings people together. That's awesome. That, that's what technology used to do before, you know, 
dark days of the internet came upon us. Um, and so, um, and so it's, uh, it, it, it is this idea of, of almost this backlash at, at to the idea that we are going to unite on, on social media, this wide, but thin net. And instead being like, I need somebody with a beating heart next to me who can look me in the eye, who can touch my hand to actually hear me. Um, and I need to hear them in a deep way. Hmm. Yeah. Wow. I've, I think that there's just a real exhaustion um, from existing in a world um, where the expectation is one of mistrust and the expectation is that you will be yelled at and you will yell, you know, um, and immediately in the way in which like, you know, our language um, is so deeply coded um, and we kind of come to expect, um, you know, the worst in one another to have spaces. Um, you know, I think this continues to be, um, a theme for so many people that show up in these suppers and conversations um, to just actually be heard and also to hear, right? Mm. People do have a genuine desire. Um, so often the challenge is not, you know, we've heard from so many people um, looking to join these bridging suppers. And the issue is not, and um, we were asked, you know, yesterday, is it hard to convince people that bridging matters, right? Or that there is a reason for this? And the answer is no, not at all, right? Mm. We've been kind of overwhelmed um, from the beginning of this project um, by demand for conversations of that kind, but very oftentimes the problem is twofold. One, um, people don't feel like they're in relationship with other, right? However, other right. is defined. Um, and so seeking and, and actually oftentimes, you know, the reality is that all of us are in, um, you know, kind of constantly, um, you know, uh, new coalitions and formations of community and people that we interact with, but we very rarely actually stop and pause and see each other fully, right? And so there's a desire to sit down to do that and a real fear of what's going to happen if it goes wrong, right? Um, and I think as somebody, you know, who spent my time of, over the last few years in conversations about grief and loss and mortality um and you know the, the hardest experience of, of the experiences of the human experience with millennials right it entered this work terrified um mm. because it felt um like there was this could go so deeply wrong right um and you know and knowing and my own estrangement from members of my family um and having been on the receiving end um of both um you know that uh that uh, vitriol and also dished it out, you know, at times. Um, it was a deep awareness that um, if we choose to enter this kind of subject matter, right, um, you know, are we, are we inviting, um, you know, a, a deepening of the problem and an entrenchment, right, which is why actually we chose so adamantly to avoid issues, um, talk in that kind of first relation, moments of relationship building and getting to know one another. This isn't about talking about issues. It's certainly not talking about 45, right? It's actually talking about us and about our own stories and lived experiences that have formed who we are um, and recognizing that we each, you know, um, so profoundly transcend, transcend the labels and identities that we carry and also are shaped by those labels mm. and identities and the differences um, in the way, um, you know, in which we experience the world on the basis of the skin we live in and the cultures and contexts in which we arrive there. Um, so I just, I think people are ready to not be afraid of each other, frankly. Hmm. And, you know, my perspective before really diving into this conversation, um, but having done some of the homework, kind of having followed the work that you've done uh, for the past eight months or so, um, and reading about the, the stories of people who have been to these dinners, uh, my perspective as a naive Canadian was that these are 
um, dinners where Republicans, Democrats, or people who voted for different sides in the primaries are getting together. Um, but it really doesn't sound like it is just that or even that. I mean, it just almost sounds like the, the barriers you're trying to bring down are, are much more local. Yeah, I think that that's, um, you know, a, a little bit of a mythology, this idea that political polarization is the only kind of polarization that there is, right? Or that that is the only bridging work to be done. Mm-hmm. And the reality is that um, even among people who share similar voting habits, right, there are so many, um, you know, assumptions that we make of one another and projections um, and real um, underlying senses of distrust. And in America, born of um, a centuries-long history um, of violence um, and trauma um, mm. that hasn't had space for airing and naming. Um, and so, you know, while we've had conversations and suppers, you know, of, across the political line um, and bringing together, um, you know, Trump supporters um, with um, Bernie supporters and those conversations have gone well, that has been a small fraction of the whole of bridging conversations, mm-hmm. um, you know, when it comes to um, conversations across generational lines, across faith lines, across racial lines. There are so many different ways and means through which we self-segregate. Um, and I think people are hungry to break out of those spaces, but don't necessarily know how. Hmm. So from what we've talked about so far, I mean, it certainly sounds like the work you're doing and the idea you dreamed up uh, you know, almost a year ago now uh, was a really important one for the place, the country that all of you live in. What I'm curious about, what often becomes real for me and a lot of people I talk to who have uh, the odd good idea, is that it's so much more work than that. Um, And just to put it into sort of scale for our listeners, you all have had some pretty big successes recently. Lots of people are taking you up on the invitation to be part of the work, and some former U.S. presidents are noticing. And what makes me so hopeful, so optimistic, is that so many of you have shown up, dived in, and embrace the kind of active citizenship that makes our democracy work. Civic leaders like Emily May, a New Yorker who's working to bridge divides by bringing people with diverse views together over the simple joys of a shared meal and honest conversation. So what I'm curious about, um, well, congratulations, first of all, but what I'm really curious about is uh, not so much how the partnership with the Obama Foundation happened, but how does this sort of initiative look in the early days? What's the first supper look like? How do you get something like this to fly to begin with? Yeah, well, so all of this happened totally, um, you know, we, di- we didn't go into this project and partnership with funding in the door, you know, mm-hmm. with a baked plan and strategy, right? We did it because we had to do it um, as human beings, um, you know, as certainly, um, you know, leaders of, of networks and in um, community with others who were hungering for these same spaces. But we did it because we were seeking these spaces. And, mm-hmm. you know, as with, um, you know, all of the stories that we carry, you learn pretty quickly that your story is a shared story, right? And so I think, you know, I think back on our very first supper, right, on January 20th um, of, of Inauguration Day, um, we actually held about 10 suppers um, in Washington, D.C., um, uh, hosted wow. or coordinated um, by a super um, human friend, mutual friend of the three of us, um, but who had brought together um, folks who had gathered in D.C. for the Women's March the following day. Um, and these were squarely in the healing space and track, right? And that was a moment, and I think that we have seen kind of an evolution, um, you know, from a place of immediate, acute, raw grief 
um, to um, you know, meeting spaces for resilience and building our inner reserves as we recognize that this is a long game. But in those you know, early, early days, it was just a space where we needed sacred, right? And we needed it now. Mm. Um, and so that was 10 conversations that happened in a single city, um, you know, among a number of folks who were coming in as strangers, but knew that they needed to be there. And I think, you know, uh, not dissimilarly from what unfolded the following day, um, you know, part of that experience was a real shared experience of joy, right? Um, and that actually like entering into these spaces from a place of deep need and hurt um, but you find very quickly that being with one another, connecting on a deep and meaningful level is part of, you know, like a reminder of the vitality of the human experience that is so easy to forget in these moments in which the headlines would remind us of everything that is so very wrong. Hmm. Initially, we didn't know this was going to be a thing. We started as a campaign <laughs> called 100 Days, 100 Dinners. And I remember I was driving from Nashville, Tennessee to Little Rock, Arkansas, um, talking to Lennon on the phone and being like, yeah, we need to do a dinner thing. And yeah, let's pull in Emily. And <laughs> did we do it around like the first 100 days? Okay, go. <laughs> you know, um, Like most, I think, good, if not great ideas, they start out as, as nuggets and kernels of things. And then you pull together incredible people um, with a hustle mentality <laughs> um, and and so you know we very much I think we're operating out of a space of if we do it they will come and not just they being the people but the resources would come because it felt mm. like the world our heart could not mm -hmm. shake right mm -hmm. it, it was what we had to do and so um, you know we had no idea when we started this in January that it'd be an awesome video where Barack Obama would be talking about <laughs> Yeah, that was like a dream. The far off distance, what we knew is that our communities were hurting and people needed space to be with one another. Yeah, no, um, I wish I had Barack Obama or Michelle or somebody on speed dial. Um, but you know, that's, that's <laughs> you don't. How it started. I'm working on it. I'm working on it over here. <laughs> yeah, step one. You know, it's not how it started, and even that that was so circuitous. Um, you know, it was somebody who I, I've known for many years, but haven't talked to in at least six months, who knew somebody who I met one time four years ago, who just took a job at the Obama Foundation. I mean, it was very uh, loose, loose, loose connections. It wasn't like, you know, I even had, there was even some champion, um, you know, inside the Obama Foundation that was rooting for us. It was just like they um, heard about what we were doing and it resonated in that deep way that, um, that Jen's talking about, you know, they saw the need, um, and, and the president saw the need, um, in the same way that we did. Yeah, that's interesting. One of the things that's come out of a, a handful of the interviews I've done for this program so far is that people who approach things trying to solve their own problem or scratch their own itch, um, tend to be seeing a lot more success and um, uh, being much more effective than um, people who you know, come out with the sort of the world needs this mentality or the institution needs to change, um, at least in terms of the short-term success uh, that I'm hearing about. Um, if someone's so inspired to put something like this together in their own community, perhaps not in the U.S., but uh, elsewhere, what are the kind of, um, I guess, uh, 
very basic suggestions? Uh, what are the kind of learnings that you have had about how to make a space like this? You know, all the things that you've said it needs to be safe and sacred and welcoming. How, how do you make it work? Yeah, so one thing that has united each of the dinners that we've hosted around the U.S. is a poem, actually, that we start each dinner with, which is called An Invitation to Brave Space, which is written by the Director of Healing Justice Initiatives at Faith Matters Network, Nikki Scott Bay Jones. And it draws this um, deep distinction between safe spaces and brave spaces. We know that because of our current political, social, cultural context, there really aren't such things as safe spaces, particularly for those of us who are embodied um, in a way that is not completely um, in line with the majority, right? <laughs> We're constantly under threat. What we can do though is encourage people at this sort of intersection of personal and social transformation um, to lean into vulnerability, to lean into the willingness to mess up, the willingness to be hurt, because we all have been hurt. So I thought maybe I'd share a reading of An Invitation to Brave Space just to give your listeners a... Yeah, absolutely. That would be fantastic. What, what we start with at every dinner. And it reads, Together we will create brave space, because there is no such thing as a safe space. We exist in the real world. We all carry scars and we have all caused wounds. In this space, we seek to turn down the volume of the outside world. We amplify voices that fight to be heard elsewhere. We call each other to more truth and love. We have the right to start somewhere and continue to grow. We have the responsibility to examine what we think we know. We will not be perfect. This space will not be perfect. It will not always be what we wish it to be, but it will be our brave space together and we will work on it side by side. So those are the words of uh, Mickey Scott Bay Jones. And as it, as it so eloquently puts, you know, ain't no dinner table gonna be perfect, right? Because <laughs> people aren't perfect. It's gonna get messy. And especially when you're talking about tense issues, um, it has the potential to be, um, really, really, you know, funky, if not held right. Um, and so it's really about setting the conditions of possibility for us to open up and imagine something different together, recognizing that it's not going to be perfect. Thank you for sharing that. How often are you doing these dinners? And, and what are the kind of things that have, have come out of them? I mean, just listening to that poem, uh, I, I can see why you read it. Um, it really also does kind of set it up so that like anything could happen. What, what, what kind of stuff does happen? Yeah. Um, so suppers are happening all the time. Um, I just last night was in our very first virtual supper also over a zoom call, um, which it can be done. Wow. It was a really powerful night. Um, I, I, in which um, a 74-year-old who lives alone um, with her two dogs called in from Orlando, Florida, um, together with a 19-year-old in New Orleans um, and um, folks in uh, rural Michigan, rural Pennsylvania, from all over the place. And this was a moment in which, um, you know, I talk about different forms of um, uh, of isolation, right? Um, mm -hmm. In the most physical 
um, literal sense, um, and isolation from one another and from each other's stories. So often geographically, um, you know, the divide between rural and urban um, and just the many different kind of cultures in which we walk and, and live um, mm. we don't have a lot of opportunities to hear each other. And so it was a really joyful night and also one of um, just deep and honest sharing. And I think that that, you know, it's so simple, right? Um, was that the kind of resounding experience in coming off of that um, evening was just like, I feel less alone, right? Um, and so, you know, it doesn't have to be, and I think, you know, to, um, to what brave space is um, and, um, you know, through these experiences, we're, we've grown so afraid of each other. And I think, you know, Mark, you made this point earlier that, you know, there's a long, we have a long history of expectation in institutions, right? And that somebody else will come forward and fix something, right? And so the number one thing that feels powerful is to have the agency and the ability to be a part of a community, to do something yourself, to be in relationship with one another um, without having to wait, right? Mm. Um, and I think real moments in which, um, you hear yourself say something that hasn't had a chance to be aired, some truth um, that doesn't get told, um, and moments in which you hear and witness somebody else's truth, and that totally um, contradicts or comes as a surprise from whatever um, you know narratives you placed on that person and stories and expectations you carried of them. Um, this is where healing happens, you know, um, and so there is that kind of weird. A mixed space, you know, even as this grew, um, you know, around two tracks of conversations, healing and bridging suppers, um, you know, oftentimes we'll ask people after the fact, you know, how was that and which kind were you in? And they have no idea, right? Um, because those who signed up for a healing conversation realized um, this year enormity of difference in the lived experiences of those around the table and came to a moment of appreciation um, of those, uh, you know, journeys that carried them into the room. Um, and healing suppers become bridging suppers and the opposite and um, that in bridging suppers you find moments of healing um, you know with stranger and with other hmm. so so how is it that these are organizing I want to go to a supper I go to your website I go to your Facebook page I sign up for a supper is it any more complicated than that yeah so it's super super simple um, people can sign up to join um, or to host. Um, and we uh, hope that they will sign up to host. And part of um, our role um, is to then equip them um, with tools and training, um, you know, to have the conversation that they're seeking, right? Um, and kind of step one in any conversation with a new host is, um, you know, close your eyes and imagine that you're doing the dishes. Um, what is the kind of evening that you just had, right? And so all we have to do is map backwards from that, from mm. everything, from like the, you know, practical logistics of how do you build a guest list? Um, you know, what are the template emails that you send to your friend and they send to their friends, um, you know, and other uh, others in your, um, you know, neighborhood or community to whom you can reach out. Um, part of what we can do, you know, in places where we do hear from people, um, you know, in the same spot, then we can match them to one another. Um, you know, uh, for folks who are looking to join a supper, to those who are looking to host. But already we've heard from people in something like 450 odd cities and towns um, across the U.S. Um, so the vast majority of those are from places that none of us have ever heard of um, and where we will hear from one person. Um, but I think part of, um, you know, what we're able to do um, is to keep the barrier low enough that, um, you know, hosts feel able, um, you know, if they're what we look for are people that are good hosting life, you know, um, mm. and because it signals that they know how to make people comfortable in space. Um, and so can bring them together with tools, with discussion questions that take the conversation from a place that's so often in a 
intellectual and heady and kind of skimming a surface and uncomfortable into the practical, here's how you sequence, right? What happens when people walk through the door? Oh, it's a good idea to leave a few things undone so that people have something to do with their hands um, mm. as you're waiting for the rest of guests um, to filter in. Um, so there isn't that kind of like awkward right. lull and stirring, right? What does it look like to really create comfortable spaces? And then when you sit down, um, you know, the process of introducing brave space um, together, creating those group agreements um, mm. and kind of container space that we wish to, um, you know, establish for ourselves and then kicking off, you know, with a question um, and the kinds of questions that aren't asked in your everyday. It's super easy. Uh, and you have Spotify playlists. And we do have Spotify playlists. I thought that was so clever when I saw it. I, f I flagged them. I haven't listened to them yet, but uh, they're on my to listen to list. So super cool. Any any um, quality evening around a table requires a really good playlist. So we've got a few minutes left. I thought I'd just close by asking a similar question to the one that you ask uh, your volunteer hosts. Um, kind of put yourselves in the future 10 years from now, hopefully you're not doing dishes, but somewhere and looking back and uh, thinking about what you've done with the people's supper. Where is it that you're going next? And, and what is it that you hope to have achieved by that point? Um, I haven't fully like processed this um, yet, but yesterday morning I received an email from my father and with whom I have a fairly estranged relationship. Um, and it was um, a link to some article on some right-wing blog. Um, and, and it was about um, why um, in this moment in time, it didn't matter to him, um, you know, and him via the voice of this author, um, you know, that there's such vulgarity um, present and such, um, you know, just like unmasked hate wandering, um, you know, the White House and the highest office in America. And it was because, in his words, um, that we were at war. We were in the culture war. Um, and I realized in that email um, that my father had placed me on the other side of a war. Um, and so my hope for the people's supper um, is that we don't have to do battle with one another. We have been battling in this country um, from its foundation, right? And it has put and bodies have been lost to that battle. Um, and so my hope through this um, is that, um, and I think, you know, it back to so much of what we've talked about, that there's this, you know, sense of arriving at a supper tired and tired of the way of having done things and a knowledge, mm -hmm. a deep knowledge that we have to do differently, um, but that that different, um, you know, cannot not be um, a further you know, a, a long history of trying to sweep a history under the rug, right? That it has to be honest. Um, and so that's the simple bit of it for the people's supper. We will never be able to um, create healing spaces for every person in this country who needs healing, nor will we be able to convene every person, um, you know, who needs and ra desperately needs a radical act of bridging, right? Um, mm. But I think to establish a proof point um, that some other way of being in dialogue and relationship with one another to have that um, that proof point be visible and to have tools that are um, available and accessible and usable by people in their own communities. That's my end goal. Um, and, you know, if uh, correcting my relationship with my father, um, it may seem uh, like a far off task, um, but also one that I'm willing to uh, continue to work towards. Mm. Mm -hmm. Linen mic drop. <laughs> Linen mic drop. <laughs>
I um I wonder if they're gonna like look back at this time in history and look back not just at the People's Supper, but of all of these sort of dinner supper story projects that have like bubbled up, you know, there's 20, 30, 40, I mean, there's so many of them, right? Um, and, uh, and, and look back the same way that, like, we look back when, like, those first internet pioneers were, were charting this path for us to be able to connect with one another hmm. um, across these, like, divides, right? Across these geographical divides, across these information divides. Um, and, uh, and I wonder if people are going to look back and be like, remember when they, like, actually started talking to each other again over dinner? Remember yeah. those? Like, mm. it'll be like by then it'll be on like they'll be on like dinner technology 3.0, you know, by the time they'll <laughs> right, and we'll right. be like dinner technology 1.0, and we'll be perceived as like really old school and how we perceive dinner technology, you know. But but still, but still, but still, <laughs> I, I I'm like I'm just seeing it. I'm seeing it. Give it yeah. give it a little 15 years over here. <laughs> well, Jen, I think you get the last word. Yeah, um, I'll also tell a story. So last week, um, Emily Lennon and I were at a gathering of spiritual innovators, people who are thinking about new ways to form community, um, some of whom over dinner table. So again, we're not the only game in town. There's some rad folks doing this all around the country and internationally, um, recognizing that food has been a secret way we've gathered to be people for a long time. But there was a moment where um, some, some challenges around like racial stuff was bubbling up um, in the group and it was a moment of pause where people um, took three breaths and then they started speaking their truths and all of a sudden some of the older women in the group started singing and um, and I could feel this like really strong presence of my ancestors surrounding me you know people who cotton and fields in places like Arkansas and Mississippi and Georgia coming along and in that moment I feel like I got a taste of what collective liberation could look like when people are brave enough um, to speak their truths and be held well in the midst of that and it is not a coincidence that we started that gathering by reading Brave Space (laughs) (laughs) and so I just you know, and for all of the the storms that are literally raging um, throughout our world right now, um, and for all of the um, bodies who are in the direct eye of that storm, particularly black and brown bodies, right? Um, there is something about the power of seeing each other and seeing each other as fully human. That once you have a taste of that and experience of what it's like to be free and to be one's full self and be held well um, that I think can change the world. And I don't say that lightly. I don't know that one dinner is going to save the world, but I do think that ethos of of leaning deeply into um, becoming more fully human together can. And so my hope is that 10 years from now, um, just as there was, you know, there is a movement to separate and divide us, there will have been this counter- Revolution of love um, of people who are are doing the hard work to either restore or create anew what our vision for community can look like. Mm. How's that for a mic drop? You all know how to end the podcasts. Well, uh, thank you so much for taking the time to have what uh, not a light conversation, but uh, felt like a uh, an important one, a meaningful one for for me to be. 
uh, allowed in on. So I'm grateful that uh, each of you took the time out of what I'm sure are some crazy busy schedules. So thank you. Thank you, you, Mark. And all you podcast listeners, check out thepeoplesupper.org for guides and tools to better conversation. That was this week's episode of the Govern Yourself Accordingly podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. And as always, you can find the links to any of the uh, articles, resources, and books that were mentioned in the show by scrolling through the episode description and the show notes, which are also posted over at springtide.ngo slash GYA1. That's for Govern Yourself Accordingly episode one. Govern Yourself Accordingly is a podcast produced by Springtide, and we are a Canadian charity committed to helping you lead change through politics with your integrity intact. Find us at springtide.ngo, facebook.com slash springtideco, or on Twitter at springtideco. You can find me on Twitter at Mark Coffin. Special thanks to Sandra Hannebaum, who read the poem that you heard at the beginning of this show. Subscribe to the podcast, search for Govern Yourself Accordingly wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're listening on a web browser, you can also subscribe for email updates if you scroll down on this post and get a message whenever a new show is released every Tuesday. There are a couple things you can do to help the show. A big one is rate and review the podcast in Apple Podcasts. You can also share this podcast on Facebook or Twitter. You can find an easy-to-share link at springtide.ngo slash GYA followed by the show number. Better yet, if you thought of someone during this conversation, during this episode, someone who might appreciate hearing one of the messages that was shared in the show, why not send them a personal message with a link to this episode? I am forever grateful for all the people who point me in the direction of helpful teachings and resources, and this is your opportunity to be that person for somebody in your life. Okay, if you're still listening, uh, I wanted to share a piece of bonus content that uh, I stumbled upon that felt uh, relevant and related to this episode. And I won't say much more about it other than it's a video of Barack Obama speaking at uh, a public event at a library in like 1995, uh, where he made a comment that just found felt so fitting uh, for the kind of work that the People's Supper is doing that uh, I couldn't not include it. But you can find the full video, uh, a link to it in the show notes. I'm reminded of my wedding, where my grandmother, Toot, who I just read this passage, she's about 4'11", little white lady from Kansas, and uh, she came down to the south side, where we were getting married, and she came to my mother-in-law's house, and, you know, she's, uh, this is a woman who, like, uh, was a banker, right, so she's a little white Kansas banker lady, and... She's walking in the middle of the south side of Chicago, and you know she's probably feeling a little tense about it. And she walks in, and, and she sees sort of the spread that my mother-in-law's put out. And immediately, her, light, uh, her eyes light up, right? Because there's uh, macaroni and cheese, and you know coleslaw, and uh, succotash, and, and other things that I don't eat, jello molds, you know? And uh, it, it, it seems funny, but... But there was an immediate connection there, and I think it has to do with some sense. And and, uh, my mother-in-law reminds me uh, very much of my my grandmother in terms of some basic sensibilities, a certain stoicism, an unwillingness to complain and gripe all the time about things just to get on with it.